right. Hey, Cole, thank you so much for leading us, team. That was awesome. All right. Um, if you missed that first introduction, my name is Sean, and uh, if you are here for the first time, uh, you picked a great weekend to start with us because we're starting a brand new series. Uh, it's called Beautiful Mess. Um, and some of you might be uh, wondering why, why on earth we would call this a series Beautiful Mess. Um, honestly, I, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great description of what the church is. Um, and so uh, I think oftentimes we, we think sometimes, I know as Christians, and I certainly did this as a, as a young Christian, I looked at, uh, and I read the New Testament, and I read through the letters of Corinthians and Ephesians, I thought, man, they had it all together back then. And then only to discover that uh, they were as messy as we are, <laughs> and they had as many issues as, as we had. So uh, we, we're going to be journeying through the, um, the letter, the, fir to the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to um, a young church, a very young church in the ancient city, Greek city of Corinth. And uh, we're going to spend pretty much the whole summer and into the fall. Um, so we're just going to take our time, journey through it. Uh, there are 16 chapters. We're going to work through about a chapter a week. And so uh, we're just going to cruise through the summer. So if you're traveling in the summer, don't worry. Just come back up wherever you left off. Um, we'll post all the, all the messages online so you can, you can catch up online or, or follow along if you want. I know Pastor Joshua, our life group pastor, had got a, a great little study by, uh, guide. So uh, I know many of the life groups are following along with it. But there are books out on the book cart. Uh, that's kind of a, a journey or a kind of a an expositional study through the first book of Corinthians. So if you want to do it by yourself, to do it with a friend, uh, it's a great resource. Uh, avail yourself of that. Those are available. I think they're for sale. But, man, if you just need one, go pick one up, take one, and then just charge it to Pastor Josh's accounts. He's loaded. So it's awesome. So, uh, yes, my, my job tonight is um, I'm just going to set the table. I'm just going to uh, give you a little bit of the cultural and the historic context um, of what, when, when this letter was written, because I think it's important. Um, sometimes, I, I know some of you are, are love the history, and some of you are going like, oh, there he goes on waxing about emperor so-and-so and whatever. Uh, and I get it. I understand that. But um, a couple of reasons why I think um, cultural context and historical context is important. Um, let me give you two quick reasons, just so you know. Uh, I say this all the time, is that Christianity is a historical faith. Um, the, the events surrounding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ took place at, in a geographic location, uh, location that you can still visit today in a specific period of time where these events were recorded for us, not only in the biblical accounts, but also in other secular uh, historical accounts. And so uh, we have a faith that is rooted in history, in time and place. And it's really important for us to understand uh, the history of, of why uh, we believe what we believe. What we believe is important, but why we believe it is important as well. And, and the reason we get the why in understanding the history and the context in which uh, these events took place. So that's one of the reasons. The other reason I think the, the historic and cultural context is really important is because it, it gives us an interpretive lens uh, into which to read the scripture. Uh, oftentimes, and I think one of the big mistakes we make as 21st century Christians is we read the scriptures with a 21st century Western bias. I mean, we can't help it, right? We just, we have a culture that we live in. We have a way of looking at the world. We have certain uh, experiences that we've gone through. And so when you read the scriptures, we read it through that grid and that lens. Um, and unfortunately, what, what happens oftentimes is that uh, that grid, that lens of our 21st century culture will make the scriptures say things that it never intended to say. Um, and we'll miss things that the, the authors intended to say. And so it's really important to know the audience that the, that the authors were writing it to and the culture and the history in which it was written. That way we just kind of have a clear interpretive lens 
lens which to read the scriptures. And so it just helps us uh, tremendously um, in understanding the scriptures um, well. Um, now, that's not to say that you have to have a, a doctorate in ancient studies or, you know, foreign languages. Um, I, I have neither. Uh, but, but it is important just to, to, to kind of dig into the scriptures a little deeper than maybe just the cursory readings. Uh, one of the things I love about the scriptures and what was so important in the uh, Protestant Reformation is that they believed that in the clear reading of scripture, like you didn't have to have someone like me interpret the scriptures for you, that you could just read the basic scriptures and, and it's clear enough to know exactly what God intends for us. It doesn't mean that you don't need to um, have others that are gifted in that to help um, open up some things for you. I mean, that's important as well, but uh, the, the scriptures are, are just clearly written. Those important things about salvation and how we're saved and what God wants for us are pretty clearly known in the scriptures. Uh, but there's a richness that comes with digging deeper into the scriptures. The scripture encourages us to study to show ourselves approved. And so the, the, the more we can deep, dig into it, uh, I think the, the richer the experience is. So here's, here's what I want you to know in, in terms of this. That this letter, the first Corinthians, was not written to us. Who was it written to? Not a trick question. Just seeing if you're paying attention. All right. It was written to the Corinthians. So it's not written to us, right? It was written to a specific group of people who lived in the context of a very specific culture at a very specific place and time in history who were dealing with some very specific issues in, their, in the context of the church. So it, it was not written to us, but it was written for us. Uh, there's a lot that we can garnish from them because here's the unfortunate thing. The issues that they were dealing with that, that, that uh, are being addressed in this letter, uh, unfortunately, are the same issues that we're dealing with today. I mean, a lot of those issues are still really relevant in, in, in the life and the world and the culture that we live in today as well. So even though it was not written to us, it is written for us. So there's a lot we can learn. Um, and what we're going to see is there's some really practical theology and instruction that's given through this letter that's really helpful in us and how helping us navigate in, in a culture that in many ways has rejected God and has turned its back on God, uh, much like the culture that uh, those early Christians in, in the city of Corinth were living in. So even though it was not written to us, it is written for us. And so there's a lot we can garnish from uh, reading through this, this scripture. Um, so I'm going to just set a little, a little bit of the, of the table about... Um, what, what, what the church was like at the time in the context which was living. What we know about Corinth, and this is really cool about, I think it was 2016. And maybe this is for those of you who just graduated, your kids, when, when, when our youngest daughter graduated from high school, we sent her off to college, and then my wife Jessica and I, we did a trip around Europe. We were like, yes, they're out. We got to go play. Uh, something we've been dreaming to do but could never afford to do or had time to do while the kids were young and growing up. And then as soon as uh, they, they were graduating school, we, we did a trip around Europe. And one of the cities, uh, the, the countries that we visited in Europe was Greece. And we actually had an opportunity to go, go to ancient Corinth and hang out in the ruins. And I actually have a video that I shot there. It's pretty, it's, it's a home video for sure. But I'm going to play you a section of it a little later. Uh, but Corinth, as you can see, it's just, it's beautiful. The setting itself is gorgeous. Uh, even though 2,000 years of, of, you know, of ruin and, uh, you know, of time, uh, it's still, the site itself is, is just very uh, spectacular. It's a very beautiful location. Uh, it, it, Corinth, that ancient city, had a long, long, rich history. It existed uh, well in the, in the BCs. Like, I, I'm not sure exactly when it was 
was first founded, uh, but it had existed for a long time. In fact, uh, it, it shows up in Greek mythology. Um, it, it was a place where, because it was close to, to an ocean, we'll talk about that in a minute, um, it was an area where they built a lot of the boats and the, uh, the trireme's, which were the, 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 triremes, which are the Greek battleships uh, that kind of gave the Greek Navy such a supremacy in the ancient world at the time, were said to have been built in Corinth, some of the first ones built in Corinth. If you've ever read any Greek mythology, uh, you'll, uh, the, the legend goes that the Argo, the ship that Jason sailed to, to find in search of the Golden Fleece, uh, that, that ship, the Argo, was built in Corinth, according to legend. And so it has a long history that, that kind of goes back into the midst of, midst of history um, as, a, as, a, as a, a, a commercial hub, a shipbuilding place. Um, as the Roman Empire started gaining um, uh, prominence in that region of the world, uh, Corinth kind of stood in opposition to Rome's advances. Um, and uh, history tells us that in, in 146 um, BC, um, the Roman general Lucius Mummius um, came in and he pretty much destroyed the city at the time. Uh, he razed it to the ground and for a hundred years, Corinth sat in ruin. Until the first century, when Julius Caesar, I think it was 46, almost 100 years to the day, um, where it was first destroyed, Julius Caesar rebuilt the city. And what Julius Caesar did, he, he, he declared it to be a Roman colony, and he colonized it with ex-Roman um, uh, legions. And so he gave them land, he gave them uh, prominence, and so it was kind of this new built city. And, and pretty soon, uh, Corinth um, uh, grew to be uh, the capital city of, uh, of that whole Roman province in Greece, which pretty much took up most of Greece at the time. Um, and one of the reasons why uh, it, it gained such a quick uh, economic prominence in the region was because of its geographic location. Um, if you can see on that map there, Greece is that whole piece that extends the whole way long, and that last, that lower bit is the Peloponnese Peninsula. Um, it's also part of Greece, and it's pretty much separated just by the small little isthmus of land um, between the mainland It's connected, and Corinth sits right in the middle of that. Uh, and so geographically, it was incredibly strategic. Um, it became, uh, the, it was called the Bridge of Greece. It, it kind of gave, gave access to two large seas on, on either side, so it, it, uh, it, it supported trade from the, the west to the east. And what often happened is that uh, the, Roman, uh, the Greek merchants and all the other merchants of that day, Roman as well, as well as Phoenician, um, they wouldn't want to sail around that lower tip of, of the Peloponnese Peninsula, it was Cape, uh, called Cape Malia. Um, and the reason why, because it was incredibly treacherous. It was one of the most dangerous capes um, to route. It was kind of had the same notoriety as Cape Horn had um, later on as, as, as sailors began to circumnavigate that cape. And so uh, it was a treacherous journey. And so oftentimes what they would do, if the boat was small enough, they would just pull it up into the isthmus. And then if it was small enough, just haul the boat right that four miles across the isthmus into the other sea. And they would have to save themselves that 200-mile journey around the cape. If the, if the boat was too large to haul across, they would simply unload it, uh, transport all the goods, and then load it up on another ship on the other side. And so um, it, it became, and Corinth then sat in the middle of all that commercial activity. And so it began to flourish uh, as an economic center um, and, and center of trade in, in that area. And it was all new money. It was kind of like the new wealth because of these uh, Roman legions who had settled it. And then in addition to that, it, it attracted all kinds of merchants and, and trade. Tradesmen, 
Um, it was a, a melting pot of nationalities. There were Greeks, there were the Roman legions, uh, there were Phoenicians, there were large contingents of Jews um, that had come. We actually hear, read about that a little bit in the book of Acts. Um, and so it was just this melting pot. It was this bustling um, new city that was just full of new wealth and money. Uh, but with all that wealth and money um, also came uh, a lot of excess and, and decadence. And, and so Corinth actually became known as a, as a place of debauchery and drunkenness and all kinds of sexual kind of stuff going on. And one of the reasons it was so... Um, such a one of the one of the main reasons for all the um, the moral kind of stuff, the immoral stuff that was going on, was that um, there was a uh, a large hill um, up up above. Um, um, the, the city where the city was built, up above it, it was called the Hill of the Acropolis. And the top of the Hill of the Acropolis, you can kind of see it in that picture, uh, was an, a temple built to Athena, also Aphrodite, uh, Astra. It's the same God that we see appear all through the Old Testament. Uh, then the Greeks uh, called it As, uh, Athena. It was a goddess of fertility and love. And uh, in that temple above on the Acropolis, above the city of Corinth, um, there were said to be over a thousand sacred prostitutes. And they would live up there. And then at nighttime, they would come down and then ply their trades within the, the streets of Corinth. And so it was a, uh, just a, a, a kind of a crazy city, all kinds of sexual stuff going on in it, all kinds of money, all kinds of drunkenness and debauchery. In fact, uh, in the ancient Greek, the word Corinthianized, uh, actually became a, a term within uh, the language of, of Greek to actually, uh, that was synonymous with immorality and debauchery. So that's Corinth, right? That, that's the context, uh, the cultural context of what Corinth is. A lot of new money, a lot of wealth, a melting pot of people, all kinds from all different kinds of nationalities. Uh, the one thing they had in common was the worship of, of pagan gods, this whole pantheon of gods from the Roman and the Greek pantheon, as well as gods that were brought in from, uh, from Phoenicia and all from the Middle East. And so it was just a, a, just a spiritual melting pot and all kinds of stuff going on in the city of Corinth. And so uh, into this context, the Apostle Paul arrives uh, in the winter around 49, 50 AD. And he shows up um, and he begins to proclaim the gospel. So let me just pause here because I don't want to assume everyone knows who the Apostle Paul is. In fact, um, sometime I heard the other day that I was talking about Paul and uh, there was a young one woman in here and she had no idea who Paul was. And so let me just not assume everyone knows who the Apostle Paul is and tell you a little about this guy because he is the author of this letter. Um, in fact, um, most scholars believe he didn't actually write it in his own hand, but he actually dictated it. Uh, and so oftentimes when you read through Corinthians, uh, there's these, sometimes these long run-on sentences and you wonder why, like it seems like the grammar is a little messed up or, uh, you know, it's because uh, it's dictated and Paul's just kind of, he's talking out and he's thinking out as he's speaking and there's some secretary or scribe just trying to write down everything that, he, that he's uh, saying. And so uh, the Apostle Paul um, was a contemporary of Jesus. He, he lived at the same time of Jesus. In fact, he was, he was probably close in age to Jesus. Uh, we're not really 100% sure, but we can assume he was pretty close in age to Jesus. Um, he was a citizen of Tarsus. Uh, Tarsus was a city uh, in, in what is now southwestern, uh, south central Turkey. Um, and, the, and, and one of the things that distinguished um, um, 
pull from, from most other Jews in the region that he was actually a Roman citizen. He had probably got that Roman citizen, citizenship from his father's side. Um, and um, then Paul, as we know, he became a, um, a religious scholar. He went to Jerusalem as a young man. He studied under a very well-known rabbi, a, a man named Gamaliel, um, and he gained an education in Torah, in the law, and he became very devout. He was a devout, um, very passionate about the law of God, the Torah of God. And, uh, and we, we know uh, as a young man, as, this, as the church began forming after Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem, Paul was one of the first to really kind of come against the church and persecute it. He was present at the death of Stephen, one of the, the very first Christian ever martyred for his faith. And then he kind of um, he pursued a, a campaign of basically terrorizing the early church. He began to persecute it, find, uh, seek out and find Christians, arrest them, um, and, and, and put, bring them the for judges and rulers and uh, with the hope of either imprisoning them or even executing them. And so Paul was really a, a religious terrorist is, is what he was. Um, and then he encountered Jesus, the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. You can read about that in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. In fact, I would encourage you guys to read the book of Acts um, as just a backdrop of, of kind of the missionary journeys of Paul um, through the summer. Maybe it'd be good reading as a compliment to first, um, first Corinthians. Um, but uh, he encountered Jesus, and that radically, radically changed his life. How many can say amen to that? You know, like you encounter Jesus, he's going to change your life. For good or for bad, he's going to change your life, right? Uh, there, there's, there's no getting around Jesus. When Jesus shows up, uh, it, just, it, it, just, it just changes your, your life. It does. Uh, and so Jesus, uh, sorry, Paul had a, a dramatic encounter with the Lord Jesus. Uh, Jesus calls him to be an apostle, to be his advocate, um, to the, not just simply to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. We'll see that Paul had a very specific calling, not just to the, to the family of God, which was kind of the Jewish nation at that time, but to the greater family of God that was all across uh, the, the known world at the time. And so that's where Paul poured out his life in, in bringing the message of the gospel um, to, to, the, to uh, the Gentile nations. And so... Um, Paul shows up in, in Corinth, and, uh, and we, we read about that in the, in the book of Acts in chapter 18. And so I read that while I was in Corinth. I excuse that the audio is a little funny. Jessica was doing a great job on her iPhone photograph, you know, filming it. But it is a little funky, but I think you can get the gist of it. And it does set the context a little bit. So why don't you go ahead and roll that? Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, for I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, and together with his entire household, Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, 
for I am with you. No one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God amongst them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God, contrary to the law. And it's right here where we are sitting, the bema, which was the central square of judgment in the city of Corinth, that Paul was brought. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If this were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of question about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from his tribunal. And they also seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. And so here in Corinth, Paul established the church, where later he would write uh, the letters that we now have as 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Corinth was a city um, full of various gods and worshippers of numerous gods. If you pan up to the hill up to the top there, you'll see at the very huge outcropping of rock on the very top was the temple to Athena. Astros, as many as you've known in the ancient world. She was the goddess of fertility. And there were thousands of temple prostitutes that would live up in that citadel. And at night, they would come down into the city of Corinth and ply their trade. And so it's no wonder when Paul writes to the Corinthians, um, he speaks so strongly against the sexual immorality that was so prevalent in the city. And yet many came to know the Lord and many changed their lifestyles. Pursued monogamy, faithfulness, began to pursue virtues that were unknown in the city at the time, but consistent with the law of Christ. And so here in Corinth, the church was established. And it went from this place out to all of Asia because Corinth was a major trading port. So once again, you can see the strategy of God working to spread the gospel. Paul and Barnabas and Silas and all those men of faith were instrumental in in taking the gospel to the known world. All right, so so that's ancient Corinth. Um, You know, Paul um, spent about... um, 18 months in Corinth, and uh, he left, um, when he left the city, um, there was probably just a very small church that, that he left there, and probably no more than 50, perhaps 100 at, at most, um, that he left, and he went to the city of Ephesus. Um, in that church, there were um, some Jews, but mostly were Gentiles. Uh, but even departing Corinth, um, Paul continued to be deeply invested in that church. Um, he cared deeply for them. He loved them deeply as a spiritual father. And um, he, he spent much time um, praying and contending uh, for their maturity and for their growth. Um, and so you can see this as he writes these letters, how his heart goes out to, to the Corinthians and desires so much for them to see them grow up in faith. Um, 
And so we know that from, from, from the book of Acts and from other accounts that um, Paul receives a word from the church while in Ephesus from, um, uh, from the household of Chloe. We're not really sure whether Chloe was a Christian or whether just simply people within her household had become believers. Um, but they went to Ephesus perhaps on a business errand or whatever that was, and there they found Paul, and they related some of the issues that were going on in the church. And it's kind of a, a really cool way of kind of, it's like they, we pull back the, the curtain, if you will, and just see the dysfunction and, and the mess that goes on in a church. <laughs> you know, like a regular church, um, much like our church. If, uh, if you could pull back um, the lid of everyone's lives, we would see a lot of stuff going on, right? Uh, we're all in this process, this journey of transformation. And it's a beautiful mess uh, because Christ is in the middle of it with us. He's transforming us and shaping us uh, throughout the process. And so uh, here in Corinth, um, th there, there's a small handful of believers who love Jesus, but there's all kinds of mess, all kinds of things that they're still trying to work out as they're answering this question, how do we live in a culture that is so challenging and so demanding? Um, anyone ever feel that about our culture today, right? And the, the culture that we live in. And so uh, in many ways, uh, the Corinthian experience is not that far removed from our experience here, especially living in our day and our time in this place um, here on Maui where there's just so much spirituality and so many other kind of forms of godliness um, and, and so many temptations, right, that would draw us away from the things of God. And so, yeah, uh, we're, we're kind of the... the, the curtain is kind of drawn back so we get an insight into some of these issues that the church was dealing with. Issues like division around their favorite teachers, their favorite apostles. Well, I don't like Pastor Sean. I prefer Pastor Kaipo, so I'm going down to Makawa, you know, or I prefer, you know, Pastor Morocco down to the big church because he's so much better, you know, that big church. We love that church. And so there's just a, there's a lot of division, right? And this is the same kind of division we have today was occurring around kind of which teacher is better and who is the, the, the more charismatic and, and so forth. And so a lot of division around their favorite apostles. There was also a lot of division around sexual immorality. Uh, sexual behavior, things that they were doing, was causing all kinds of division and dissension uh, and, and, and strife within the church. There was also all kinds of division around business ethic. People, uh, Christians, were suing other Christians, you know, whether, you know, someone ever paid you, and so you, now you're taken into court, and it, it was just a big fat mess, you know, it was just really, really messy. There was also uh, a lot of questions. We, we know that, um, there was Chloe's people that came to, then someone else kind of we're told in the letter that brings a letter um, asking Paul to help them kind of navigate through some kind of issues. Issues like one, one particular issue that they deal with was sex and marriage and singleness. Some of you guys need to come back for that because that's going to be interesting, right? There's a whole lot of stuff that Paul, insight that Paul drops in us uh, in regard to, to how we're supposed to conduct ourselves within our marriage sexually, how we're supposed to conduct ourselves as single people. And so uh, lots of insight in that. Uh, one of the other big issues that they were dealing with was the, the issue of individual freedom versus corporate uh, good. And so uh, it came up in this area of whether or not to eat a meat that was being uh, sacrificed to idols, not something we have to deal with. But, but really at the core of that was this issue of do I exercise my personal freedom or, or do I submit myself to the corporate good? 
you know, what, what is best for the church and community. And, and so that's an issue that Paul deals with through this, and I think it's going to be helpful uh, to us in, in looking at that. Another very contra uh, controversial issue that Paul deals with, I'm going to give this one to Pastor Josh to teach. It's about the role of women in ministry. Uh, you guys really want to come back for that. Pastor Josh is going to do a great job uh, leading you guys in that. And, and I will not be answering any emails uh, regarding that at all. Uh, and then there's also the order of worship. You know, how are we supposed to worship when we gather together? Are, is it supposed to be a free-for-all? Is it supposed to be order in it? They had all kinds of questions around it. There was all kinds of questions around spiritual gifts. A lot of people were exercising their spiritual gifts. Uh, lots of cool stuff going on, but it was kind of, it was causing a lot of people to stumble. And there was also the spiritual elitism. Well, I have this gift, and you don't have that gift, so I'm a better Christian than you are. And all kinds of contention around the spiritual gifts. And so Paul deals with all of that. And then uh, in, in one of the last chapters, he deals with the issue of the resurrection, how important and foundational it is to Christianity. <coughs> Some of the believers had start, started advocating that there was no resurrection. And Paul would say, if there's no resurrection, then you're wasting your time, all right? Don't even bother doing this. Um, but there is a resurrection. Christ indeed did rise from the dead, which makes a huge difference in our lives. In fact, the implications of that are eternal. And so these are the issues that we kind of will navigate through as we journey through this thing. And it's going to be a bumpy road. I guarantee you, Paul's going to raise some things that are going to really irritate some of you, really offend some of you. Uh, but we're in it, right? We're just going to navigate through it. We'll walk through it. We'll allow the Spirit of God to bring counsel to it, um, and, and I know that we will be richer because of this experience. So let me kind of uh, shift now to just to do the, some of the introductory verses, because I think, think there's some very cool stuff that Paul says right at the very beginning of this letter. Uh, so if you have a copy of the scriptures, just open up to 1 Corinthians. We're just going to read three verses, um, and, uh, and then we'll kind of uh, wrap it up. All right, so here we go. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, verse 1 says this, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Right? So Paul says, here I am, Paul, but I've been called by the will of God. And this understanding of, of Paul, Paul's calling was so fundamental to his identity and who he was. Called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is someone who's sent out, who kind of acts as an ambassador, if you will, of, of a new kind of uh, message, a, a new kingdom. And Paul is going out kind of as the tip of the spear to bring this message of the gospel. And, and the fact that he was called by God to do this was critically important for him. In fact, it was the sustaining reality of his life. Paul would endure incredible hardship, incredible pain and suffering. He would be beaten and whipped and imprisoned and hungry and shipwrecked and, and all kinds of incredibly difficult circumstances. And what kept him moving as facing through all those challenges was this incredible sense of his calling. So the question I would say to you, how about you? Do you know that you too have been called by God? You too have been called with a mission to participate in the growth of God's kingdom. Now, obviously, you might not be sent out, you know, where, wherever, you know, into, into Asia Minor or, or called to be shipwrecked or all those sort of things. But every single one of you has a calling, whether it's simply to be a mom, stay-at-home mom and love on your kids, to, to minister to your neighbors or to your family. Every single one of you have, has a calling. And Paul's calling is what sustained him through some very, very difficult seasons of his life. So his strong conviction of, of who he was, called by God to be an apostle, was significant. And we see this permeate throughout the entire letter. This calling was such a driving force in his life. 
Um, not only that, then Paul tells us some very significant things about the church. The first things he says, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. The church of who? God. Right. Now, this might seem a little weird to you, but I hear this all the time, and maybe you've said this, or maybe you've heard it said. I hear people say, oh, White Pounder Chapel, that's Sean's church. Like, or oh, Pastor Sean, right? That's his church. Or, you know, that's Pastor Morocco's church down in uh, King's Cathedral, or Pastor uh, Rob Finberg's church at Grace Church just down the road. Anyone ever said that of a church, so-and-so's church? You know, we, we have a tendency to call, um, you know, a church by, by the pastor, and I think Paul here is, 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 is pointing us to something very significant, a, a theological truth that's critically important for us to understand, that the church belongs to who? God, all right? This church, Wife in a Chapel, don't belong to me. And thank God for that, right? They don't belong to Pastor Josh or Pastor Kaipo or Tim, really, although he runs the show. Uh, you know, it doesn't belong, it belongs to who? God, Right? And it's critically important. Paul is, is making a very significant point here that the church initiates with God. The church was God's idea, right? God established the church by sending his son and through the blood of his son birthed the church, this thing that we call the church. And the church is sustained by God and equipped by God and empowered by God and will be kept until the very end of time by God. The church belongs to God. Right? And so Paul is very clear in this. He says to the church of God in Corinth. And so if he were writing a, 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 you know, us a letter, he would say to the church of God at Waipuna Chapel. Not Sean's church, not Josh's church, not Kim's church, God's church. And I think it's critically important for us to, to kind of have that framework when we look at the church to understand that this is God's idea and this church belongs to him. And here's my encouragement to you. When you start getting grumpy about the church, when you start getting kind of like, you know, uh, because we all have criticisms about the church, right? Because the church is not perfect. It's messy. But when you start kind of criticizing the church, realize who it belongs to, right? It might be a sobering reality. It might kind of tone back your criticism a little bit, right? This is God's church. And even though we, we, we kind of are fumbling our way through it, God is at work in the midst of us. And God is making something beautiful out of the mess of our lives. This is his church, right? And so Paul's very clear of this. So the first thing we learn about the church is that it belongs to God. I love that. Uh, I'm grateful for that. It takes a lot of weight off my shoulders, right? That, that this church belongs to God, and I can trust him uh, to continue to sustain the church, to grow the church, to empower the church here at White Pinnacle Chapel to do exactly what God intends it to accomplish um, in his kingdom. The second thing that, a number of things that Paul actually tells us then is some things about who you are as a Christian, who we are corporately as Christians. This is what he says, first, uh, verse 2, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who ever in every place called upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing we're told here is that we as Christians are set apart. Right? Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm set apart. Sometimes we don't feel like it, but we're set apart, right? We're set apart by Christ's sacrifice. That word sanctified in the Greek, it's a word hagitso. Um, it's, it's kind of... Um, literally means to be set apart by sacrifice, to be made separate from because of a sacrifice. You and I have been set apart, not because we're particularly special or different or anything. Some of us are a little different. Uh, but, uh, but, but we're set apart because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
We're set apart for God's purposes. Um, so to be a Christian is someone who understands that Jesus died for me. And because of that sacrifice, I've now been set apart for his purposes. You know, so, so you know, Paul would say, say this in, in, later on in, to the Corinthians, that, that your life is no longer your own, right? You've been purchased with a price. You've been set apart. You've been purchased, redeemed by God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for a very specific purpose, for his purposes on this earth, for his kingdom purposes on the earth. Well, that's the first thing he tells us about you. This is who you are as a Christian, right? So turn to your neighbor again and say, I'm set apart. I'm set apart. He goes on to say, and you're called to be saints. How many of you feel particularly saintly today? Like you like feeling, yeah, I've got my saints on. I'm feeling really good about my saints today, right? We don't really feel that way. But, but this is a theological reality. You have been called, right? As a Christian, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you've been called to be a saint. That word is it's the same root as, as sanctified in the Greek. Um, it's hagios, which, which is the same word we get holy from. But now holy is, it, it, in some sense, it means like righteous, pure. But more than that, it, it means that you're different. Like you're just different. You know, if you're a Christian, you ought to look different in the world. You ought to live different, think different different in the world because you have the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead living and indwelling you and that's going to set you apart sanctify you and kind of give you this capacity to live differently in the world that, that your life won't just merge into the culture but you'll actually be set apart you'll look different so 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 turn to your neighbor and say hey call to be a saint all right you know I love you know back in the day um we used to always have a, a moderator that would come up here and, and we'd have random people do it. And my, my wife, Jessica, occasionally would do the moderation. And when every time she's sitting right there, and every time she'd come up, she'd say, good morning, saints. And everyone would look at her and go like, yeah, not feeling it this morning, right? But that's the reality. Even though we don't feel like we're saints, right? Um, we are. In God's eyes, we have been set apart. We have been sanctified. Um, and we have been made holy, not because of we are particularly holy, but because of who is in us, who's indwelling us, uh, the presence of God's Spirit. Um, and so, first of all, you, you are sanctified, you're set apart, and you are, you're a saint. You're different. You ought to look different, think different, act different in the world. Um, and, and then the final thing he says, and I love this, I, I just love this. He says, we are joined together with all believers. He says it this way, for those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. Right? So, so, so we're, we're together with, with everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus in every place. I mean, isn't that crazy? And, and Paul's going to expand this further in, in, later on in the, in the book, by, that we're part of the body of Christ, right? And so like when we think of the church, right, we think of the local church, we think of maybe White Pinner Chapel as the church. And the church is not the building, right? It's the ecclesia, it's the gathering of the saints, right, of the people of God. And so normally we think of the, the church, we think of our local expression, the local church. But the church is a gr much greater than this, right? It, it, it's spread all across the world. It's Christianity is the largest religion on the planet. 2.7 billion people call upon the name of the Lord. And here's the crazy thing. We're all together, right? We're all, it's the one spirit, one baptism, one Lord, Lord of all, right? All together. And this is amazing. This is one of the most incredible things that you'll get to experience. I mean, some of you have traveled um, and, and you've been in other Christian communities across the world. I mean, Jess and I have had the privilege of traveling quite a bit. 
Uh, we've been to Morocco, we've been to Africa, we've been to Europe, we've been to South America, we've been to Myanmar, Southeast Asia. And wherever we go, when we step foot into a Christian community, there is a unity there. There's a bonding, there's a, a fellowship, like a connectedness that is just, it's almost indescribable. You know, we don't understand the language. We don't know the songs they're singing. Uh, you know, half the time we don't really, you know, we don't even know what's been spoken. But there's a unity and a bonding because we're all together, right, with all believers all over the world, wherever they take place. And, and this is who we are. We're, we're, we're so much greater than, than one expression, so much greater. The, the church of God is so much greater than Waipuna Chapel, so much greater than any one individual, and I think when you understand that you're a part of something so much bigger than you, there's something kind of that just, it's wind in your sails. There's just like, man, you, there's something about that that is really encouraging to know that you are, are journeying with people and not just the people in this community, but people all across this world and ultimately on mission with Jesus to bring his kingdom uh, values and, and, and love to bear upon this culture. And so uh, be encouraged by that, right? Be encouraged by that. We're, we're, we're in, uh, with, together with all believers who are in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. I love that. And so uh, one of the, th the other things that he says uh, about Jesus I think is really important. He says this. He says, we are called to be saints together with all those in every place called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And I love the way he says that. In other words, he's saying that, that Jesus is Lord of all, right? You know, that, that, that no one church can claim kind of exclusivity to Jesus, right? Regardless of their expression and their practice, right? Um, if they call upon the name of the Lord, like he is Lord of all, right? There's no exclusivity. Uh, one particular church doesn't have the corner on Jesus. And what I love about Jesus, when you get Jesus, you also get all of him, Right? I love what William Barclay says. He says, God loves each one of us, of us as if there was only one of us to love, right? And even though we're a part of this incredibly large body of believers, uh, you know, God loves us individually, you know, and we get all of Jesus, even though we're only a part um, of the body, we get all of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he doesn't minister to us in parts, but he ministers to us in whole. So when we are, are worshiping Jesus, we, we have access to all of his love, all of his compassion, all of his wisdom. All of that is available to us in Christ. So um, how are we doing so far? All right. So that's kind of like the, 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 the introduction we set up. So let me just give you some kind of just a practical um, framework in which I want us to look at this book. Um, at the heart of this, uh, this, this, this message, that, this, that as Paul's writing to the Corinthians, um, is, is a question. It's a question about, about how we choose to respond to culture. And, and so um, here's the takeaway. If, if none of this all is just kind of, you forget all of it, here, here's one thing I want you to remember uh, as we journey through the series. Um, how we respond to the culture in which we live will impact the transforming influence we have on that culture. Let me say that again. How we respond to the culture in which we live will impact the transforming influence um, in, in the culture in which we live. Um, so, over the last 2,000 years, um, every generation of believers in every single culture, whether it's in Europe or was in Asia Minor or whether it was in Greece and Corinth, um, at every generation, at every season, every church, every Christian has had a choice how they get to respond to the culture in which God has placed them. And that response determined 
their, their in transforming influence they had upon that culture. And, and so at the heart of the, uh, the, 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 this letter, it, Paul is asking us this question. How are you responding to the culture uh, that you live in? He's speaking to the Corinthians and saying, Corinthians, how are you guys responding to this crazy culture of all kinds of sexuality and debauchery and paganism and all the stuff that's going on, all this wealth and influence and money and power and status? How are you responding in that culture as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ? In the same way he's saying to us here at White Pinner Chapel, in the midst of all that's going on in our Western culture, right? How are you responding? And all that's going on in our particular environment here um, on Maui, with all the kind of the, the spirituality that there is, with all the, 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 the distractions of pleasure and, and, and entertainment that we have, how are you responding in that culture? Um, and so uh, a couple of verses I want to just kind of like to press down into this um, before we, we wrap this up. In 1 Corinthians 2, um, uh, Paul makes a statement that's so profound. Um, he expresses the posture he took when he first came to the Corinthians. He says this, um, Corinthians 2, 1, 1 and 2, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Which is kind of unique for Paul because Paul was pretty good at lofty speech. I mean, he was a, he was a debater. He was a trained theologian. Um, if you read the book of Acts, uh, you'll see that he debated with some of the brightest minds um, on Mars Hill in Athens. So just before he came to Corinth, he was in, in Athens. And he had kind of, he had, he had, he had kind of come toe-to-toe -to -toe with some of the, the greatest philosophers in the ancient world at the time. But he says, when I came to you, Corinthians, I didn't use any of that. Instead, he says, I decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And to the Greek mind, the idea of worshiping a God who had been killed on a Roman cross would have been ridiculous, right? It was so contrary to everything that they stood for. But Paul knew something that I hope you as a Christian know. And perhaps if you're here tonight and you aren't a Christian, um, let me tell you that there is power in the cross of Jesus Christ. There is power in the cross. There's power in the cross um, to, to bring unity in ways that, that we would never imagine. There's the power in the cross to, to, to humble the human heart and, and move it away from its self-interest and selfish desire. There's power in the cross that defeats a deception and brings truth. There's the power in the cross to, to, to win victory over sin. There's power in the cross, right? Um, it's through the power of the cross that we can truly love people the way God has called us to love people. I mean, there is power in the cross. So Paul says, I, I don't going to know anything except the power of the cross. And what Paul understood, it was the power of the cross that would enable the Corinthians to make the choices they would need to make in their lives to engage the culture in a way that would not conform to it, but instead would actually transform it. And so, he goes on in verse 6 to say this. He says, Yet amongst the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not the wisdom of the age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. In, in other words, he's saying there is a wisdom that exists in this world. It, it's a wisdom that, that has a thinking apart from God. Its thoughts are apart from God. Its philosophies are apart from God. It's ingenious and it's in, it has ingenuity and it has will and it has, has, has capabilities. But it's apart from God. And so, uh, you know, the Corinthians had every reason to be impressed with themselves. They had, had created the city pretty much out of nothing. 
and it had established it as one of the most powerful economic uh, cities um, in the ancient world. Uh, they had settled a new land. There was all kinds of newfound wealth and influence. And so at the center of Paul's message is a question. And here's the question. Are you sure, Corinthians, that you want to continue making the choices that you're making? Are you sure you want to continue to respond to the culture in the way you've been responding? And it's the same question that I think uh, Corinthian challenges us with. As we live in the same kind of culture with the same kind of influences, maybe not specific to, to, to what the Corinthians were dealing with, but in our own ways, we're dealing with very similar things. So the question Paul would ask us, how are you responding in the culture? So let me leave you with just three responses. Uh, this is from uh, Brady Boyd. He wrote a book called Remarkable. He's a pastor in Colorado. Um, and he, he said he generally, in his area of ministry, he has uh, seen three responses in the church to the culture. He calls it uh, the in integrators. He calls them isolators or instigators. Let me just break those down for you really quick. Uh, firstly, um, the, the, the integrator. Whether consciously or unconsciously, they integrate into the culture in order to be accepted by the culture. Consciously or unconsciously, they kind of just, they, they just kind of flow along. They get along, you know, they move along, get along, you know, uh, j just so they can en engage and kind of not kind of create any waves in the culture. Not offend anyone, not upset anyone, but just kind of blend in to the culture. It's the Christian mom, right, who discovers that her teenage daughter is sleeping with a boyfriend. And so she buys her daughter a bigger bed. You know, just so that she could not know where her daughter is. As long as they're in my house, I feel a lot better with that. Or it's the, you know, it's, it, it's the Christian couple um, that have moved in together. Um, and the reason they moved in together is because, you know, she's still getting alimony from her ex-husband. And they just can't afford not to have that alimony. So they plan to get married. And one, by, by the way, everyone's doing it. So it's all good. That's the integrator, right? We just kind of blend into the culture. Uh, and the integrator has no, like, deeps conviction about anything um, and, and therefore has a really high tolerance towards sin. So there's the integrator. Now as I go through this, I know you're thinking of people who are like this. Uh, don't do that, all right? Uh, keep the mirror in front of yourself, all right? I relate to all three of these, just by the way. Like every single one of these, I read through them, I'm like, yeah, there have been seasons in my life where I've been an integrator. I totally get that. I know what that feels like. And then he says there, there are the, uh, the isolators. And I get this one too. The isolator, the private, uh, the, the private and protected world of the isolator takes precedence over the world that Jesus calls us to serve. In other words, they, they're so concerned about protecting uh, their little piece of, of kind of the kingdom uh, that, that they, they forget the commission, right? The commission, what is to go make disciples, go into the world, you know? And, and so in, instead of kind of being... Uh, you know, in the world, on mission with Jesus, they kind of isolate. And they create like these little bubbles of Christian community. And, and they forget that we've been called to serve and love and reach the world that Christ died for. And so they're the isolators. And perhaps maybe you know an isolator or two. Perhaps you are an isolator. Um, and then, and this one I really relate to as well, is the, uh, the instigator. Yes, the instigator. There, there are moral crusaders that are so focused on cursing the darkness of the culture that they've forgotten the calling to be ministers of reconciliation. Know any of these? Like, man, it, it's like not on my watch, not in this culture. The culture's winning, and they, they're stealing it, whatever that is, right? And, and so we want to we get back whatever that is, right? What it, I, I don't know what it is, right? 
And I think, you know, like, just be honest. Like, if you, if you think of that in the American culture, uh, what is it that we're trying to get back to? Because, you know, I look at American history, and, you know, I consider myself an American, even though I, I have a weird accent. Uh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know what part we want to get back to. Do we want to go back to slavery? We want to go back to Jim Crow? Want to go back to the time where women had no voting rights? Want to go back to the time of child labor? You know, with the no child labor laws of protection against children? I mean, at what point are we trying to get back in culture, right? And, and, and the gospel helps us with this because the gospel will teach us, you know, as a Christian, um, that the human heart is deceptively wicked. <laughs> and so wherever humans are in culture, there is going to be a wicked trend towards uh, towards the culture. Every culture has a propensity to lead towards power, pleasure, and money. You know, and oftentimes negates, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? And so, you know, you have the, the, those instigators that are looking to get back something, you know, and, and they kind of rally against the culture as if the culture has robbed us of something. Um, and they forget that the ministry of reconciliation has been given to each one of us that we are to reconcile people back to God. And you can't kind of do that with vitriol and anger, you know. So there are three, there are three, three responses that generally Christians have to the culture that we live in. You know, either you're an integrator, you're an isolator, or you're an instigator. So who are you? Do you see yourself in that? You probably know people, right? As you go through the list, you go like, yeah, I know someone is just like that. Um, but here's the hope and the help that Paul offers us. He actually provides for us a fourth response. And he calls it a more excellent way, the way of love. Right? That we're called to love the people who live in this culture. We're called to love the people in a culture that has rejected God. We're called to love a people that, that, that have, don't know God, certainly not the God of the Scriptures, or have rejected the God of the Scriptures. And our calling as believers is to respond to them in love. And there is an incredible, powerful influence that love can have upon a culture. And, and so that's kind of Paul's message. At the heart of this, th this book, he's got to keep pressing us down into how are we responding to the culture in which God has called us to live. Because how you and I respond to the culture in which we live will impact the transforming influence we have over it. That's the question. How are you responding to the culture? That's where we get a journey. That's what we get to dig into over the next 16 weeks. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Uh, so stick with us. It's going to be fun. Um, and so that's all I got. All right. So um, I'm going to pray. We're, we're at the hour right now. But um, it's, it's the um, beginning of the month. And we always celebrate communion at the beginning of the month. We have people of, uh, of habit here. So um, we, we don't want to miss that opportunity. Um, if you have kids in, the, uh, in Sunday school, I would encourage you after I pray, maybe just to go and pick them up and then bring your family back and have communion together as a family. Uh, Cole and the team will be up here. We'll just play a little bit. I'm going to pray um, just for those of you who know um, the way we do communion here. It's an open table. Um, it's a time of remembrance for us to remember that we are called into the family of God, to remember that we have been sanctified by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to remember that you have been called to be a saint, different in the way we live and respond in the culture that God has placed us in, and that we are called to be a part of a body, a community of people that's far bigger than one particular uh, congregation. And so consider that, and then consider the question, you know, how have I been responding to the culture? 
Have I been isolating? Have I been instigating? Have I been integrating? Or have I been walking in the way of love? And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do communion. Uh, uh, the, the team will hold a little space for us. The tables will be open. Come up at any point, participate in communion, um, and then worship our way out of here. Is that good? All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for my friends here. I pray that um, you would bless them. I pray as we reflect upon the calling that you have on our life as believers, um, that we would not um, take it for granted that we were purchased with a price. Um, and we reflect upon the cross now as we come to the, uh, these communion tables, Father. We invite you to search our hearts. Um, lead us, shift us, change us as needed, Father. And I pray for each and every one of my friends here that you would bless them, Father. That you would bless them and use them to be shining lights in the midst of a culture um, that has rejected you. And so we pray for this grace in your precious name. Amen.